All right, we're covering Deuteronomy chapters 9 through 11. Uh, I am going to try to get through all three chapters this morning. I, I know we get sidetracked sometimes, so uh, what I'll do is cover a little bit of background, uh, hopefully no more than 10 minutes of that, and we'll jump into each chapter. If you've got any, uh, any questions, something that uh, you had a question about and wanted to bring up, or if you have some comments you want to add, or if, uh, if you find I said something really heretical and want to correct me for the sake of the people, just have that at the end. Hopefully we'll have some time to discuss. I just want to get through everything this morning. Hey, take, take a minute and tell us who you are and tell us why you're qualified. Why I'm qualified? <laughs> I'm qualified by grace. <laughs> My name's Paul Ellis. Uh, I went to Lipscomb. I studied Bible there for two years and uh, ended up doing a communications degree because I didn't want to work for a church because my dad had done that. So I kind of know what that's like. And not all churches are special like Otter Creek. Um, so I, uh, I still... Dr. Thomas? I did. I had, I had Dr. Thomas in the communications department. Uh, we talked about Arete and Paideia and all of the... Found, oh, yeah. yeah, and, and, and we often got sidetracked as well and didn't finish our PowerPoints in that class, just getting into lively discussions. So, but uh, those were good years, and I still, uh, I still keep up with, uh, with deep diving into the Bible, getting into the archaeology and the history of it. Um, I love that nerdy kind of stuff, and hopefully I can bring my struggle with Scripture to you guys and, and offer some of the uh, possible answers I've come to. Not everything I say is going to be, you know, set in stone, uh, but hopefully we can just share this as a community. So understanding Deuteronomy, it requires that we, we stay firmly grounded in both the story as it's happening and what happens after. So I'm going uh, to hit the high points of the quick recap between the beginning of the Bible and Genesis and then some history between Deuteronomy and when Deuteronomy is actually written in the exilic and post-exilic period. So you've got, uh, in the beginning, you've got God and the story, he makes a good creation that reflects his character and providence uh, for the people that he places in, in it. And God makes mankind in his image, and that's very important uh, that you understand what in his image means, which they'll flesh out later in Deuteronomy, and we'll touch on that. But uh, God gives mankind the vocation of ruling the creation that he's made in a way that reflects that image. Uh, it comes up again and again throughout the Bible, uh, in sort of the background, and if you forget about that, you miss the entire story. Uh, mankind abdicates that role, uh, causing good creation to no longer be good. God spoke his will that mankind care for and subdue creation, and when mankind doesn't do that, creation and mankind both go bad. There's, uh, there's such a separation between God and mankind that when you get further into scripture and you see God calling people like Abraham or like Moses, you know, this, this God that used to walk with mankind in the cool of the evening, they're now asking, what is your name? But the plan doesn't change. Uh, the stories that follow don't involve independent events. God doesn't scrap the plan and start over. It's always the same plan. It's always the same call. It's always the same will. It's the story that continues Genesis through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, on through Christ and Revelation. We'll start with Abraham uh, for an example. God calls Abraham, and we have Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He's trying to plant the seed of reenacting that rule that's lost in the garden. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse the ones who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Verse 3 in there is especially important and historically overlooked. 
through what God will do through the line of Abraham, all the families of earth will be blessed. Now, this isn't just about Christ coming through that line, which is often the way we interpret that. That's a big part of it, but there's a bigger picture around that. It's about the vocation of the people of God to be God's blessing and rule over creation. And this is the call that we find Israel constantly struggling with, and we'll see them struggling with what that means in Deuteronomy when we get into the text. So from the call of Abraham through the book of Deuteronomy, we see God working out the original vocation of mankind through each subsequent generation, often in very frustrating ways, and he's, he's really moving at the speed of the stubbornness of mankind and their fallenness. Uh, he also protects that call from being destroyed in providing during times of slavery and deliverance and wilderness wanderings. Um, it's like the, the, the cure for what's gone wrong with creation has to be protected. He protects them because he loves them, but also because it's part of that overall purpose. And then this brings us to the time of uh, Moses and the events of Deuteronomy. However, we, we only get half the context without knowing the history between Deuteronomy and the time that it was likely, likely written after the exile. So we get into sort of a post background. Israel enters the land that God has promised them, and they enjoy the goodness of it. And that's reflecting some of the picture of Genesis. God's replanting what had gone wrong in the beginning. They enter into a time of uh, judges and elders after Moses. And then Israel looks around at the uh, nations uh, who have kings, and they decide they want to be like them. And while a lot of people think of the golden age of Israel being the kingships of Solomon and David, uh, I think that's actually the beginning of the downfall. Because uh, you see in, in 1 Samuel, at the end of the period of the judges, uh, 1 Samuel 8, 5 through 9, <clears throat> Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And then he goes into uh, some warnings about this is what a king is going to be like. They say they still want a king, and in 19 and 20 he says, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So God's warnings come true, and as Israel, uh, instead of taking up their God-given vocation to be his light and his rule in the world and affect the nations around them through that, they become just like and sometimes worse than the corrupt nations around them. If you read the book of Kings, 99% of those kings, it starts off by saying they did what was displeasing in the sight of God. Uh, living up to what God said would happen if they had a king. Um, God sends prophets to try to get them back on track. They warn them that you've forsaken justice, that you're oppressing the poor, things like that, and they don't listen. So they don't listen, and it gets so bad that the nation of Israel actually splits to ten tribes in the north and, and uh, Judah in the south. And the abdication of Israel to God's calling leads the people to the faith that everyone that play games of elitism and uh, power and greed and darkness fall to. First, Israel falls to the superpower in the north. They're just destroyed in battle. Um, and everyone that's left there is scattered. Then Judah is set, uh, they're set on by siege warfare later. 
and uh, they're taken into captivity. The, the elite are the ones taken into captivity, the scribes and the Pharisees, the people of the land, as they're called, those are the, the poorer people, the people that would farm, they were left behind. Now, after roughly uh, three generations, uh, a time, a time, and half a time, I think is, as the prophets call it, about 70 years, so there's some people that remember this, and, and they have this uh, two generations behind them that they're speaking to. They are allowed to return. Judah returning as the remnant calls themselves Israel and takes on the tribe again. So now we come to Deuteronomy. Uh, the elite that were taken into captivity have, have a lot of questions that come from the trauma that they've just experienced. Uh, they've been defeated. They had been starved during, uh, during siege warfare. They've lost their homeland. They were marched out of their homeland. And when they were marched out, based on the accounts of uh, how the Babylonians did military business, they were probably marched past the bodies of their loved ones that were just left on the ground. Not only did they not get to bury them, but that had uh, afterlife questions for them. What's going to happen uh, to, to mom and dad? You know, they're just left out there. And that actually comes up later in the prophets where they talk about the Valley of Dry Bones. That answers that question. Now, they ask themselves questions like, who are we anymore? And, uh, and how did this happen? And you know what happened to the covenant, and where is God? And uh, these are expressed really well in Psalm 137, which I've heard argued, and I agree with. Uh, any study of the Bible should start in Psalm 137 because this is what was written by the people that wrote what you have as Torah now. And it's been set to songs uh, all over the place. I like the Bob Marley version. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth sang, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How can, we how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So Israel defeated, wonders if God can even exist outside of the land of Israel. They actually think, because they're confusion about who God is, that God might not even be able to be with them when they're not in God's land and they wrestle with what that current situation means. So, to answer their questions that they're struggling with, they turn to the stories that have been passed down generation to generation in the oral tradition, um, ever since the time of Moses and before that, and they write down uh, pretty much what we have as Torah today. The version has stayed pretty consistent. So, you're gonna hear two voices speak when we get into the text. There's the voice of the story happening, when it happened, um, Moses actually speaking to the people as they're about to enter the Promised Land, and then you have the voice of the older generation having gone through traumatic experiences, handing down the story to the generations that are going to be taking over um, the history of Israel. And this doesn't mean that the version that they wrote down is inaccurate, and I'm not making any statement about fallibility or infallibility of Scripture. This just makes it true on an increasingly deeper and more human level. Uh, think about the stories that either you as a parent told your children from your life or the ones that your parents told you, the important ones, not just the, the funny ones. You know, you added things there that you were hoping that they would avoid some pain that you went through, some mistake that you had made. You were wanting to make sure they didn't miss out on the best experience that you, you had had, and you wanted to guide them in the right direction. That's what we're looking at here. Um, we're looking at passing down the story with a definite purpose. If you come at Deuteronomy looking for a comprehensive history, uh, you're really going to miss out on that extra voice in there that's part of a bigger story. <coughs> so we get to chapter 9, and uh, chapter 9 starts. Uh, Moses is addressing the fears, and he's mixing in warnings with Israel's history. <coughs> Someone would uh, read 9, 1 through 6. 
here, Israel, that you are now about to cross the Jordan, go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall. Anakites, you know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on the account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God <coughs> will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. You're a stiff-necked people. Thank you. And I'm glad that you read it because you read the exclamation point after Anakites. Yeah. I don't know why I find that so funny, but uh, whenever I read that, they're just like, Anakites! So, um, verses 1 through 3. Uh, they own the fact that Israel has good cause to be afraid because the, the inhabitants are bigger than they are and they have strong fortifications. And Moses answers that fear with the promise and reminder that God goes before them. For me, that's an admittedly hard concept to trust. Um, the fact that anyone has ever experienced hardship and much more the actual experience of hardship in my life, it, uh, it leads to this conclusion that you never really own up to, but it's there that God might not always go before us. Uh, logically, it seems like more of a roll of the die to trust God to the point that we, are, uh, we get into situations where we confuse God with the jinx. You know, We find it more logical to be careful about what you say about the future because that might affect it than it is there's a God that actually goes before you. But one thing that I've learned for this concept is that I can't mistake the totality of my understanding for the totality of truth. I had a, a very trusted and admired friend in a prayer group uh, who was about to take a, a big step in her life recently, um, one that was uncertain and uh, dangerous but good. And I remember her saying that uh, she was reading these Old Testament stories and was struck with how God really is the God who goes against us or goes ahead of us in, in a mighty way. When she said that in the face of this un uncertain future, so it gave it, uh, gave it the gravitas of, 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 you know, faith rather than just blind optimism. And it sunk in with me that God really is the God that goes before us um, and many times in ways that we don't see yet. And, and I come back to that, his thoughts are not my thoughts, his ways are higher than my ways uh, verse. Knowing that I, you know, I can't see the picture except in hindsight. And in hindsight, when I take an honest look, I see that he hasn't missed a day. And he has actually gone ahead of me. And, uh, and all my logic didn't get the whole picture. So we get to verses 4 through 6. And uh, Moses is going to warn Israel against the pride that will tempt them after the victory that's been promised and then give a picture of God's just and purposeful actions. Uh, remember the fall that we covered in the post-background material where Israel's defeated by the superpowers of their time because of the choices the voice here in verses 4 through 6 would have been screaming at, uh, at the original readers of the text as it was written and hearers of Deuteronomy. Uh, Israel had fallen to taking pride in itself and fell to the temptations of might and wealth. So from both for the people that heard it from Moses and the people that heard it when it was written down, you have this double meaning, these two voices in there. 
Now, as the inhabitants of uh, Canaan were driven out, God wants to make it clear that it's not because they are un- uh, because Israel is righteous. I like Philip Camp's book that we've been pulling a lot of this from. He titles this section, It's Not You, It's Me. Um, and that, that's a good description of it. So if you think back to the original purpose in Genesis of uh, mankind is su- supposed to rule in, in God's image uh, over creation, and now you consider that God is placing his people in a good land and planting the seed of that original purpose, um, it, it makes sense he's driving out an unrighteous people because uh, if a people could be planted in a good land that could grow to reclaim creation and fulfill the original vocation, that's great. But if an unrighteous people control the land, the purpose is not being fulfilled and that goes against God's character and the word that he spoke from the beginning. So you get into seven, uh, 9, 7 through 29, if somebody could read that. Remember this, and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Oreb you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, Go down from here at once, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. For themselves, And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them into pieces before your eyes. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord for forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time, I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took that sinful thing of yours the calf you had made and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. You also made the Lord angry at Tibera, at Massah, and at Kilbreth Hadabah. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, Go up and take possession of the land I've given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. 
You've been rebellious against the Lord ever since I've known you. I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people. Your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us out will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the desert. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Thank you. All right, so Moses continues the warnings by reminding people of their failings at Horeb. Um, and it comes across really harsh, but I don't think the purpose here is just to shame the people or get back at them. Uh, I think the warning is set at the same level as the possible consequences, which we see from history, um, you know, total destruction, uh, murder of your loved ones, siege, warfare. Um, he sets them at the same level the warning should be as harsh as the consequence. And as you remember, Moses goes up on the mountain and he gets the tablets with the commandments. And uh, after he's gone for weeks and weeks, the people become afraid and build a calf. And people often have time have a uh, troubling time relating to this failing because we live in a largely monotheistic culture and assume that the Israelites were strict monotheists. But there's evidence both in scripture and in archaeology that the Hebrews vacillated and struggled uh, with the concepts of monotheism and henotheism. Henotheism is, uh, we believe there are lots of gods, but we say, this is ours. Um, you know, there are stories in the Old Testament where the people of God also have household gods, and they don't say anything about it. It's, you know, you, you would expect, and they had this god, and God, they had this household idol, and God punished them for it. It's actually just a side note. It's, it's like as if they said, then they ate lunch and moved on. They don't mention it. It's just part of the story. Um, there are also uh, historical records of greetings of the leader of Israel from, uh, from other nations where the leader of that nation will greet them in the name of Yahweh and his Asherah. And if you remember Baal and Asherah, so there, there's this religious syncretism where they, they're not quite getting the point. And the nations in the Old Testament that were around Israel had, uh, had national gods, they had fertility gods, they had agricultural gods, and they had lesser household gods. Uh, and idols. So when you look at the story of God and Israel with the lens of that cultural setting, their turning to other gods can be seen as a more relatable temptation. You see this frustrating conversation between God and his people where God says, I am the one God, I am your God. And Israel seems to say back like a kid that doesn't quite get what you're saying. They're like, great, yeah, you're our national God. And God says, no, no, I'm the one God. You know, don't have any other gods before me. And Israel says, yeah, we get it. You're our national God. You're the one that goes before us. You're the one that makes sure that we win. Um, and you can see the problem there. They're making the story about them and their purposes and God fitting into their purposes versus God has a purpose that he's invited them to. And the takeaway from this uh, is that we, we actually make the same mistake, um, just a new version of it. He's, you know, he's not the American God, and he's not the Christian God. He's God, and Christians get to be there by grace. Um, he's the I am who was and is and is to come. And he's not the one who looks out for us because we got it right and did the stuff to get into the club of the people who got it right. Uh, he's the one who's always had the same calling for mankind, and we fit into his purposes, not the other way around. Um, 
Don't mistake that for taking love and throwing it out because once you put the horse back in front of the cart, so to speak, you find true life and true blessing coming because God ordered these things in a certain way and invited you into that life. <clears throat> now Moses digresses in the middle of this uh, recounting of the uh, Ten Commandments and the Golden Calf story and it's like he just thought of, uh, oh yeah, and I remember some other thing you did wrong. And he, he, uh, he says, in, he, he talks about these stories that you'll find in Exodus and Numbers where Israel's grumbling in the wilderness and later refuses to keep going toward the promised land at uh, Kadesh Barnea. And What's going on here is they let their legitimate struggles and fears turn into bitterness because they were only focused on their present predicament. Uh, later, we're going to see a command to tell and retell the stories of God's providence, which is the antidote to that bitterness. I think that's going to be in uh, chapter 11. But Moses recovers from his digression. He gets back to the calf story, and he reminds the people that he made a petition on God's behalf who was ready to find somebody else to take up the calling. And uh, he reminds them that because of God's faithfulness to the covenant, which he reminded them of, uh, he, he relents, and they've been brought to this place. So now we get to chapter 10. Uh, when we get there, Moses is going to transition from these warnings of what not to be. He's going to start talking about what they should be, what being God's called people should look like. Uh, somebody could read 10, 1 through 11. So verses 1 through 5, Moses recounts when the tablets were given again, despite the failings of Israel the first time. Now, this would ring true for the original audience because they just come out of the failings and uh, rumblings in the wilderness. And then the post-exilic community that would have been reading these texts when they'd been written by the scribes would be reading the law again after the failing of the divided kingdom in exile. Uh, 6 through 9, uh, they cover the death of Aaron, and then they give an explanation to the type of uh, share 
that tribe receives. Uh, that would be important to the people coming back and, and sort of starting Israel over. Um, and verses 10 and 11 wrap up the difficult history section and point the people back in the right direction and sets the stage for the next section where Moses transitions from what failing looked like to what it's uh, supposed to look like to be the people of God. <clears throat> making y'all read, I'll pick up one. Uh, we'll take 12 through 22. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be a stiff-necked people any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw in your own eye, with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. <clears throat> so we're getting to the heart of, uh, of uh, what, what it is to be God's people. 12 through 13, you hear the echo of the Shema and the first part uh, of what Jesus is later going to call the most important part of the law when he's questioned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's the heart of the law in the beginning of fulfilling the original purpose of mankind. It's love God with everything you have. Uh, when, you, when you come across fear God, think revere. Uh, that's more what they're, they're aiming at. Revere him, walk in his ways. And Moses is actually going to flesh out what walking in his ways looks like in verse 18, so keep that in mind. Uh, in the meantime, he, uh, he tells the people that living in this way is for their good, but then immediately tempers that by repeating a reminder and a warning in uh, 14 through 17. He reminds the people that God's greatness is far beyond them, and it's only because he has set a love and affection on them and their forefathers that this relationship is a possibility. Um, it's not innately theirs. He's really driving home the point that being God's people uh, shouldn't be a point of pride. It should be something that you gratefully receive. Then we get into verse 18, which I just mentioned before. 18 and 19 are some of the most important in this section in this book. They give a picture of who God is and the image he calls his people to reflect. For a people who have been and are and will be tempted with things like status and pride and love and power, Moses takes the image of God just given where God is, you know, he owns all the earth and the, the biggest conception you can think of, that's his and beyond that. He takes that and he says, this God defends the cause of those with no status. He provides for those with no standing uh, or resource or power and he, he loves and looks out for the ones who aren't in the club. Uh, this calls the people to forsake their pride in the role of being God's chosen by being God's chosen when they take up the call, reflecting his image, doing the kinds of things God does. Later on in the prophets, they're going to be chastised for doing the exact opposite things. They're saying, you've, you have oppressed the poor. You live in these iron beds and you have all these riches while other people can't even eat. Uh, then 20 through 22, uh, they make a transition to a call uh, for memory of God's care and rhythm of life that keeps the people close to the covenant. So someone will pick up 11, 1 through 7 and read that. 
No, that's perfect. Uh, so we get to 11, 1 through 3. He tells the people to keep the memory alive of God's rescue from Egypt from a power greater than them. Uh, for the original hearers, this would ring true in relation to the people in the land that they're about to take. And for the exilic community, this would be a message of, um, I know there's this power over us and uh, things are uncertain, but we've been here before. Uh, we are a people that God delivers. Uh, this is repeated in verse 4 in a call to remembering crossing the, uh, the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds. Uh, the original hearers were crossing a river into the promised land. The uh, post-exilic community would be crossing a river to return to that land. And, uh, and then keep in mind, if you're ever in the Gospels, that uh, Christ crosses the river uh, when he restarts Israel with 12 disciples. Uh, then in, again in verses 5 through 7, uh, they're encouraged to keep alive uh, the memory of providence in the wilderness and mistakes in the wilderness. <clears throat> in all of the mentions of these stories, Moses impresses on them, these are the things that your children didn't see. They weren't there. And he's playing up the importance of passing the memory down to generations that didn't experience these mighty acts. Memory and the rhythm of telling the story is important. And in uh, verse 18 of this chapter, we're going to see that idea fleshed out. So keep that in the back of your mind. <coughs> All right. I will read uh, the remainder of 11, and then we'll get into that, uh, beginning in verse 8. Observe, therefore, all the commands I am giving you today so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers to give to them and to their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drink rain from heaven. It is a, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain, new wine, and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to uh, turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds, Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses 
and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. If you carefully observe all these commandments I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the Euphrates River to the Western Sea. No man will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God, as he has promised to you, will put the terror and the fear of you on the whole land wherever you go. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today, and the curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn away following other gods which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan, west of the road, toward the setting sun, near the great trees of Mora, in the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah and the vicinity of Gilgal. You are about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. When you have taken it over and are living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and the laws I am setting before you today. In verses 8 through 9, Moses spells out a connection between obedience of the commands and having the strength to enter and possess the land God is giving them. If they live out the image of God that we've just seen, then they will be able to live long in the land and be blessed. Unfortunately, uh, as we see, the people forsake this and they fall into exile. And then unfortunately, again after that, the people who uh, read this book fall into the same trap. And by the time of Christ uh, and a little after, it happens again and uh, Jerusalem falls in AD 70 to Rome. Uh, the dream, though, was a reflection of Eden, as we see in 10 through 12. It's a good land where God's providence and attention dwelled. Uh, but the people couldn't just have it uh, just because they were called God's people. Just as the former uh, residents of Canaan uh, were being evicted because of wickedness, so too would God's chosen, as we see in 13 through 17. Now, if God's purpose is accomplished by providing for and protecting a people to bless the world, then continuing his blessing and protections on a people who do the opposite is opposite to God's purpose and person. He can't continue his blessing to a people who no longer reflect his image because this all has to fit in with God's purpose that we see from the beginning of creation. If mankind is still abdicating their role, then God can't continue to have his blessing on them. So back to the power of remembering that I talked about earlier, we get to verses 18 through 21. Um, I'll attempt to flesh this out with, uh, with sort of a confession from my own life. Um, I, I take an honest look at myself and, uh, and how I deal with fear and anxiety. And I know that I believe more in the power of God to act in my life while I am worrying about the dangers of the present and the future. And then once God provides for that, which he, he does all the time, I'm, I'm thankful and I'm confident that he was the one that answered that prayer. But uh, way too quickly, I'm back in the present. And, you know the same worries or new worries come up and uh, and sort of in the back of my mind it's not that I've decided God didn't do it it's just that it fades it fades a little more and then when you think back on it instead of thinking back on a time where God provided I'm thinking yeah, he probably did but maybe that's just the way it played out um, and so now fear and anxiety is keeping me in the present and I'm out of rhythm with God um, there, there's a concept of Sabbath uh, that's related to the concept of temple. Temple, they believed, was where God's actual presence dwelt, where the space of man and the space of God joined. 
Sabbath was where God's time and man's time joined. And that was a, and rest accomplishes that. So when you, there's something about the speed at which you let your life move and the rhythm that you let it go in. And it's really easy to get caught in that day to day. And it's really easy to not stop and take Sabbath. And it seems like your speed and God's speeds don't match up. You're in two cars on the highway and you're kind of doing this number. But if you can match that speed with rhythm, you know, the rhythms of rest, you find yourself in God's time. And when they match up, it's, it's hard to describe, but there's this life that comes from it. And those memories, God, God says, look, this did happen, you know, and you get that hindsight of your whole life and realize God hasn't missed a day. And when that happens, the day-to-day fears and the anxieties have less power and the truth of God's providence has power. Uh, Verses 22 through 25, they revisit the conditions of the covenant and uh, describe the expanse of the land and the protections that God is going to give to them. He's going ahead of them. And then in 26 through 32, they wrap it up by revisiting the blessings and the curses. And then they bring up a a debate that uh, uh, Randall had actually asked about, um, about this whole Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Uh, it's a whole other subject to get into, but uh, it's uh, when, the, when the people uh, in Israel versus the people of Judah are making these power struggles, the kings really aren't concerned so much with uh, correct worship. Whoever has the temple has the power, and so there's this debate about, all right, no, you worship on this mountain, or you worship on this mountain. This is kind of a uh, entering back into that, but interestingly enough, when uh, Jesus comes to a well and is talking to a woman, she tries to distract the conversation by going, what about this debate? So that's a whole other conversation. It's a fun one to have, but it'll sidetrack us today. Um, so the takeaways I would love to send with you today uh, for those of us who are called, because it, this is the same calling. This is the same. God is still working on that same plan for me and that same call for mankind to rule earth in his image and, and by that bless the earth, bless creation. So we need to take away a warning here that it's... It's not just about following the old five steps of salvation to get in the club that gets to be in the right. It's not just about being in the right, and it's not just about you know having a good retirement plan post-mortem. Um, that's just a new version of the same trick Israel fell for. We aren't the people of God when we get it right. We're the people of God when we live into the original call of mankind and remember the role that was abdicated and take it back up and then rule in God's image. Every decision you make proves you have authority in the world. To choose to be kind affects the world, and that's your rule. To choose to forgive so much more and to choose to love. The second one I want you to take with you is, like I had said before, to keep the memory of God's commands and God's providences alive by creating a rhythm of rest and remembrance in your life. This is, uh, this is something, if you, if you know anybody in the spiritual disciplines classes, talk to them. They've been doing a lot of things to, to do that, um, like contemplative prayer, uh, meditation, times where you can try to match your time up with God's time, where these things can really come alive. And also, um, share your story with somebody else who might be struggling and still hasn't got a good picture of their story. Uh, get into communities where you guys can support each other that way. And the last one is to look to the human one. There's a controversial translation of what we often read as son of man in the Bible. Uh, some translate it as the human one, and there, sadly there's been a lot of debates about that because they get into, uh, is this a comment on the divinity of Christ? 
it's actually just a beautiful name of Christ because it, it, it describes something we miss a lot, that Christ didn't just come to save us from our sins, although that's important, it's a wonderful part of it. Um, he didn't just come down from the heaven, after the, uh, the heavenly councils got together like they did in Job and, and say, look, mankind's not getting it. Should we just call it? Should we just give it up? And I imagine that council happening and, and uh, somebody saying, you know, is there, is there no human who's ever going to be able to live into this role? And then the word of God steps forward. And he says, yes, there will be one. And then he comes down and does what he does on earth, not because he's not just because he's God come in the flesh, but because that's what the human vocation looks like when it's fulfilled. Because when you live into the authority God gave you to bless the world and bless creation, it looks like Christ. He says, you will do greater things than these. You know, the people see this and they're amazed at what that authority looks like. The blind see, the deaf hear, sickness and madness run from him. Even the waves and the wind, he says, peace be still, and they obey. Um, this isn't something for sure. This isn't solid theology. I might turn out to be a heretic, um, but I, I think that it's a strong possibility that even the forces of creation obeying someone fully human living out the divine image was shown in Christ. Uh, he, he said that, you know, he's going to be the first of many. He talks about him, you know, when Paul talks about him being the new Adam, the first of many. So if you want to see what, that's all to say, if you want to see what this call that Israel struggled with and what the church struggles with looks like, really get into the Gospels with that lens of, you know, not just Christ is showing us what it what it looks like to be moral, but he's he's showing us what the human being is supposed to look like. So that's all I've got here. Um, anybody have anything they thought of or wanted to say or questions? There's that's a good thing about Otter Creek. There's always uh, a whole bunch of theologians in that can add something good. I think it's interesting in verses uh, <clears throat> 17 and 28 where it talks about the curses, and uh, I think it's in 1860s. Daniel Clemens did a trip and he went to Israel and he talked about how barren and dry and there was literally nothing in Israel but scorpions and cactus. And God's promising the Israelites, if you obey me, I'm going to give you this beautiful place. And when they went in there and the, the spies found the grapes and, you know, it's, we all, it, and it went from one extreme of beauty and lush and fertility and, and giving and just so much to a barren wasteland that nobody lives in. Mm-hmm. And it just shows that God is faithful to his promises and he keeps his covenants and he keeps his word. Yeah. Even hundreds and thousands of years later and that people will document that. Yeah, and it's it's a hard concept to to believe because something in your mind goes, well what about these other places that just have natural disasters? Um, and you you got to allow for the fact that yeah, sometimes God does that. And also, maybe it's possible that one day, uh, when you know, when the kingdom's come in its full and Christ has come back, that the authority of, of humans on earth reflecting the image of God does have something to do with uh, what we call natural evil being resolved. Uh, things like earthquakes and, and things like that. That is once again the disclaimer. That's a theory of mine. Um, I can't prove it. It's, uh, it's just something that I hope is true. Anything else? I, I really kind of struggle as as somebody in 
a dominant religion in a dominant country with a historically unprecedented standard of living. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I struggle with even being able to understand God's concept of deliverance. But I, I, got, I got kind of sidetracked in chapter 9 by all the places that the Israelites made God angry. That's Tabarah and Massah and Kibroth Hatava. And I have no clue if I'm pronouncing them right, but I looked them up. So I, I, I did searches for each of them. And in one of those places, God, uh, they're, in one of the places, it seems like they're just complaining. Mm -hmm. And so God sends down fire, burns a whole bunch of people at the outside of the camp, and they call it, I think that's the Kibroth Hatava. Mm -hmm. In another one, they're so thirsty that apparently their livestock and maybe even some of them are dying. And so they're begging for water. Mm -hmm. And in another place, they're eating stuff that apparently tastes like coriander cooked in olive oil mm -hmm. and is maybe like the consistency of sticky tree bark. Mm -hmm. And they're going, give us some meat. Mm -hmm. And so God sends a whole bunch of quail. They eat the quail. They all get food poisoning. Mm -hmm. And at some level, that's God's, God's concept of delivering them from Israel and getting them ready for the promised land involves their livestock dying of thirst mm -hmm. and eating nothing but tree bark cooked in olive oil for months on end. Mm -hmm. And as, as somebody that thinks about deliverance in terms of not getting a really nice house foreclosed on, yeah. I, I, I really struggle with even, even knowing how to comprehend what deliverance looks like on a subsistence level, which apparently this was. Yeah. And and I don't. I, I mean, I I struggle. I think I struggle with that more than I struggle with God telling nations, God telling them to just go in and wipe out everybody. Yeah. Because I got no clue what this looks like. I have a very long history of feeling like I'm doing a pretty good job of what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. When reading this, I'm going. Maybe I should be thinking that I'm never doing even close to good enough of what I ought to be doing and because then at least I can think anything good that happens is not happening because of me right. because obviously I'm screwing it up. Um, I'll tell you and we'll close with this. I think we've got to get going to church. I don't have a good answer yet and I'm still struggling with when people say God caused some bad thing. I don't know if God is in the business of causing suffering, but I can guarantee you he is in the business of redeeming it. So that's where I'll leave you on that. Grace served you well. <laughs>